You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. And, you know, I thought of calling it Pete Rescues Leviticus because for many or maybe even most of you, Leviticus is ruined already. But hey, I decided to aim for brand consistency. So here we go. And, you know, Leviticus, I get it, is not the stuff... I think for most people of morning devotions or a sermon series or like neighborhood Bible studies. I mean, my doctoral advisor told us once in class that if we ever find ourselves as general editor for a commentary series, make sure we get a commitment to Leviticus first, because that's the hardest one to assign. And, you know, it's just, it is a a lot to wade through, I think. We shouldn't pretend that it's not. And for many people, I think the the effort doesn't always have like payoff value, so it's a hard thing to try to get through. And uh, you know, for those who do dive in, sometimes it's used as an exhibit A for why the Old Testament is boring and irrelevant or downright oppressive, like you can't eat pork, or for some, using it to justify anti-gay laws. Sometimes it's just a book that's worth avoiding for many people. And I know it's a hard book to invest in for Christians. I'm not suggesting that it's not. And I'm not suggesting it plays as key a role in Christian thinking as, say, Genesis or Isaiah or Psalms or a number of other books. But if you're interested in understanding something of Israelite religion – Okay, not when I say that Israelite religion, it's not just what they like believed in the abstract, but what they actually enacted, what they embodied, their rituals. Well, then Leviticus suddenly becomes quite significant. But its placement, the book of Leviticus, its placement in Torah makes it actually hard to miss. It's the central book of the heartbeat of the Hebrew Bible, which is Torah. See, look at it this way, just hopefully this gives a little bit of perspective. The entire action that is in the book of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai, and it covers a period of about a month. Now, let's just take a step back. Let's put that in perspective. Leaving Genesis out of it, Moses is born at the beginning of Exodus, and he dies 120 years later at the end of Deuteronomy. So, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cover 120 years. Exodus alone covers 80 of those years and and takes us from Egypt to Midian and then back to Egypt and then back to Midian where Mount Sinai is. A lot of years and a lot of moving about. Numbers and Deuteronomy, well, they cover most of the remaining 40 years. And they cover a lot of ground literally throughout the southern wilderness, and the territories east of the Jordan River. Now, Mount Sinai and all that happens there is clearly the center of attention in Torah. How do we know that? Well, half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first third of Numbers take place there, and they cover a mere 11 months, like not even a year. So, Exodus through Deuteronomy cover 120 years. The center chunk of Torah, the time at Sinai, covers 11 months. And Leviticus, that one book in the middle, is devoted to a one-month period in one location, Mount Sinai. 
See, someone back then wanted to make a point. For whoever compiled the Pentateuch, Leviticus was clearly huge. Now, even though Leviticus covers a short span of time, a lot is happening there, not only in terms of the content, but a lot of things are presumed in the background. And we do have to cover a lot of ground ourselves if we want to wrap our heads around this book, which is the basic goal of this podcast, not perfection, but just wrapping our heads around some of the big issues. So what we're going to do is hit the highlights concerning things like the structure of the book, maybe take a stab at its date and composition, question of authorship, its theology, what it's saying about God and what it's saying about the Israelite community in relation to God, and a few miscellaneous things. We'll see where this goes. But when I, when I structure our podcast that way, I don't mean to say that we're going to hit these categories one at a time. Unfortunately, and this is true of really, I think, any biblical book we want to dive into, all those issues are actually interconnected. To talk about authorship, for example, you're already dealing with things like structure and theology. But I trust at the end it's going to make some sense. And one last point by way of introduction, like every other podcast like this, I'm going to bring into our discussion here some insights of biblical scholarship. And as always, I want to aim as much as possible for dealing with widely accepted scholarly positions. That way, at the end, you can feel like you have a good sense of what learned and informed people who study this stuff are saying. Of course, there are always in-house debates happening about this and that and the other thing in academic circles, and that's just the way scholarship works. But let's us aim for the middle. Things that you can say out loud if you ever find yourself in a biblical scholar wine tasting party and you don't want to look stupid heaven forbid that should ever happen but anyway simply quoting a law from leviticus or anywhere doesn't take into account the historical and the literary complexities which the editors of the bible had no interest in shielding us from becoming a christian is not about earning points by obedience but living a faithful life as a Christian is a matter of ever-increasing alignment with the heart of God. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Okay, so let's get into it this way. Let's begin just with the title of the book. The Hebrew name is Vayikra, and he called, meaning, and the Lord called. In Hebrew, this is one word, and it is the first word of the book. The Hebrew names of other books of Torah do the same thing. They're named after the first word of the book. So here, at the beginning of the book, God is doing what? God is summoning Moses, he's calling to Moses, summoning Moses to the tent of meeting. Now, let's just pause there for a second. The tent of meeting and the tabernacle, which was built in Exodus, we're going to get into that, don't, don't worry, but the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are most often used interchangeably as the structure built in the second half of Exodus, the preceding book. But elsewhere in Torah, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are clearly separate structures. And here, for example, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7, this is what we read. Listen, listen to this closely. Now, Moses used to take the tent, that's the tent of meeting, and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. See, in Exodus 33, the, the tabernacle, the instructions have been given, but it hasn't been built yet. There is no tabernacle. But there is a tent of meeting where people would come and somehow receive an oracle from the Lord, however that works. So, in Exodus, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are clearly two separate structures. But in Leviticus, they are one and the same. And the standard explanation for this is that there are, in fact, two ancient Israelite traditions about the tent of meeting. In the older tradition, that's Exodus 33, they are separate structures. In the later tradition, which is Leviticus, they are combined. Now, this later tradition, again, this, this is the logic of, of biblical scholarship, and I think it's sound, but, you know, there are things here that are certainly debatable and discussable, but here's the basic framework to think about. This later tradition in Leviticus, where they're combined, was composed by a priestly class. Okay, why is that relevant? Well, this might sound like a bit of a cynical interpretation. I don't think that it is. I just think it's realistic. But priests may have wanted to bring all contact with God under their authority. Priests did not have that authority in the tent of meeting in Exodus. 
But in Leviticus, they're given that authority, and the way to do that is to meld them together. The tent of meeting is as much a priestly matter as the tabernacle is. And again, I think that's a plausible theory. It's more than we know. You know, you can't say this is absolutely true, but it actually dovetails with some other things people talk about when it comes to the authorship of not just Leviticus, but of Torah as a whole, which uh, we're not going to get into here. We do have other podcasts on that issue, though, the composition of the Pentateuch. So, anyway, leaving that to the side, isn't Leviticus fun? We haven't even gotten past the first verse, and we're already sidetracked. Because careful reading will raise legitimate questions. Welcome to adult Bible study. And these are the kinds of things that you know, modern biblical scholarship, as well as, you know, ancient Christian and Jewish scholarship, they were aware of these details as well. But for us, this is how biblical scholarship really has taken root, is by trying to pay attention to things like this and saying, well, what can explain it? Okay, back to the title. We're not even done with the title yet, folks. This is going to be a 87-hour podcast at this rate. But anyway, okay, back to the title. In Judaism... The book is also called Torat Kohanim, which means instruction for the priests, and Kohan is priest, and if you know anyone, I mean, I had a good friend of mine in high school, his last name was Cohen, that means priest, that's an ancient, um, you know, ancient title that's been around for a very, very long time. But the instructions for the priests or the instructions of the priests, that's what Torat Kohanim means. We know it as Leviticus, which is, hang with me folks, the Latin version of the ancient Greek title Leviticon. Remember, Greek became the main language of Judaism beginning around roughly 300 BCE. And Leviticon means things pertaining to the Levites. Now remember, from the Hebrew Bible, remember that Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob and became a tribe, like all the sons wound up expanding to tribes of their own. That's how the story goes. And remember that Levi was the tribe set apart by God to serve in the holy sanctuary, which is the tabernacle. Later, it becomes the temple. That's a side issue, but for right now, we're dealing just with the tabernacle. So they're the ones who are going to be dealing with the holy sanctuary. That's the Levite function. And singled out from the Levites, you had the sons of Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. And the sons of Aaron would serve as a specific subset of the Levites, and they're called the priests. And that is drawn out in Exodus a little bit more, too. And here's the thing, among the sons of Aaron, among the priests, one would serve as high priest, and he had special duties, one of which was officiating over the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur, which is in Leviticus 16, which we'll get to in a little bit. So, to be honest, uh, you know, from an academic point of view, tracing out the differences between Levites and priests and how that got to be is like a whole scholarly thing we're not going to get into. But for our purposes, here's what's worth remembering. 
all priests are Levites, right? Because Levite is the bigger category. All priests fit under that. But there are Levites who are not priests. In fact, most Levites are not priests. And I mentioned all this because Leviticus, even though it's called Leviticus, isn't about Levites, like in the general sense, as much as it is about priests. Those who do what? Who, those who are tasked with officiating over the sacrifices. Levites are more helpers. Now, the term Levite, it does appear in Leviticus, but only once. It's all the way toward the end in chapter 25. It's starting around verse 32. Now, Leviticus as a whole is mainly about priestly ritual duties. For what reason? Well, those priestly ritual duties ensure that the communion between God and the Israelites stays intact. And it's also about the responsibilities of the everyday Israelites to do what they need to do to maintain that connection. You see, apparently there were a lot of ways of threatening that connection, along with many ways of restoring that connection once it's broken. Now, I know for a lot of Christians, this will sound instinctively like works righteousness, which Paul doesn't have much nice things to say about, but what Paul's talking about is not any of the stuff we're talking about here in Leviticus, and, or this may sound like saving yourself by your own effort, but it's not. We'll get into this a little bit later, but remember the Israelites are in this, in the book of Leviticus, they're already saved. They are God's chosen people. They've been God's chosen people since the time of Abraham. And what God did is God delivered them from Egypt. The law, all this Leviticus stuff, is not a condition of salvation, do this and you'll be saved. It is a response to God's act of salvation. Okay, just keep that in mind, because it actually changes how we might approach the book of Leviticus, not useless things to do so that we go to heaven when we die, but things that help us maintain the connection between ourselves and God. And by the way, Christians do that stuff all the time. They go to church, they pray, they read the Bible, they go to Bible studies, whatever, right? We all have rituals that help connect us with God. And Leviticus, well, these are those rituals. Okay, uh, we're going to get into all this stuff in a minute. I keep saying that, but I mean it. But before we do, let's look briefly, although I don't know how brief this is because this is really important, but let's look at the structure of the book. And there is a method to my madness. Now, of course, uh, there's no one right way to view the structure of a book of the Bible, any book of the Bible. But this is the way that makes most sense to me of Leviticus. And to do that, I just like to divide Leviticus into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 16, and the second part is chapters 17 to 27, 27 total chapters. Now, no sooner do I say that than I have to backpedal just a little bit and say that chapter 27, the last chapter, is its own thing. I'll explain why in a second, but most scholars feel that this is an appendix added to Leviticus at a later time. That's not a big deal, and we'll come back to that very briefly. But again, just a reminder that biblical books do have what you might call a developmental history. They weren't just written all at one time, and here it is. As they were handed down, they were added to, they were edited, and 
you know, what exists in, you know, the third century, you know, BCE is probably different than what existed in the sixth century BCE. That's just the legacy of biblical literature. And we see traces in these books of how things probably did change over time. You can pick out things anyway. It's not a big deal. We'll come back to it. Okay. So, Let's look at part one, right? Chapters one to 16. What is happening here? Well, this is probably the section that most Christian Bible readers are somewhat familiar with. I say that with some hesitancy, but somewhat familiar with. Because why many, probably a lot of you, have said, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you start reading, and if you get to Leviticus, that's the place where you sort of conk out. You just can't finish it, because why? (laughs) Why am I reading this? But you've maybe come across things. This section begins with instructions to the people. These are instructions given to the people about the basic sacrifices. And there are two types of basic sacrifices for Israelites. The first type are voluntary sacrifices, which are just as they say. They're offerings that one does voluntarily, not on a whim, but it's things that you you know, you ought to be considering, but you do this on your own initiative. They're not mandatory. And they're for things like expressing gratitude or thanks. Now, I know the text, if you're looking at Leviticus, it starts very early on and within a couple of verses where, you know, God says, you shall bring animal X, which sounds like a command, but it's not. It means in the event that you make a voluntary offering, you shall bring. This is how you shall do it. Okay, so the the voluntary offerings are, again, maybe you've heard some of these terms, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and well-being offerings, which are also called peace offerings. And each has its own stipulations of what to sacrifice and how, and they're covered in chapters one to three. The next two chapters, this is four and five, actually it leaks into chapter six a little bit, but these are the mandatory sacrifice. Now, to understand what these are about, we have to take a step back. There's background here. We have to take a step back and understand that the ancient Israelites believed that certain, we'll call them sins, but I don't like that word because it conjures up certain things, especially for Christian uh, readers, but um, the Israelites believed that certain activities, certain actions certain contacts with certain things, had an effect on the whole community, and especially an effect on the tabernacle and everything in it. What that means is that there are certain actions that defiled things, that polluted things, that contaminated things. These are all good metaphors. There were different levels of sin that affected different areas of the tabernacle. Right. This is very important. This is the actions that Israelites sometimes could engage in without even knowing it could serve as a pollutant, as a contagion that could actually affect the tabernacle itself, the holy tabernacle. And some of the actions, of, as I said, there are different levels of sin that affected different areas of the tabernacle. Some threatened the holy of holies, which is the, you know, the most holy place. By the way, that's what holy of holies means. Anytime you see these expressions in the Bible, king of kings, lord of lords, 
it's the Hebrew way of making the superlative. So, Holy of Holies is the most holy place. King of Kings is the most kingly king. Lord of Lords, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, or in the Book of Leviticus, vanity of vanities, the most vain thing, most meaningless thing. Okay. So, in the Holy of Holies, there are actions that affect that inner sanctum where God's throne is. And then you have the next level out, which is called the holy place, and there are actions that can pollute the holy place, and then the outer court, which is where anybody can be, which is where the main sacrifice is made. And, you know, you have these stages of, and we're going to talk about this too a little bit later in a different, from a different angle, but the tabernacle has different stages. It has different quadrants, let's say, and all those things are susceptible to pollution if the Israelites do certain things, and actually inadvertently. That's why calling them sins is difficult, because sins for us usually means something you just do that's wrong. These aren't things that were done that were wrong. These are things that were done that pollute. Big difference, okay? See, the, the main point of this, though, let's not get lost in the details. The main point is that the pollution, whatever it is, if left unchecked, would threaten the community because it would put a barrier between them and God, which is about the last thing the Exodus community wants, having just been rescued with God, to be in relationship with God, if I can use that word. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. 
Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. See, side note, the, the Exodus, that story is not simply a story of liberation from servitude. Like, go be free. It was a liberation from Egyptian servitude so that the Israelites could serve God. And Exodus is quite explicit about that. Let my people go so they might serve me specifically on this mountain, Mount Sinai. And that service, as would be the case when you're in service to anyone, that service has stipulations, which is what we are seeing here in Leviticus. Leviticus is not like an annoying legalistic add-on to the Exodus story. It's the culmination of the Exodus story. They are free from Pharaoh, and they are now in God's presence and bound to this God who rescued them. Okay, that's, that's sort of a big overview comment, but again, I think it's a very important one for trying to understand the theology of the book of Leviticus. Well, anyway, these mandatory sacrifices that we see in chapters 4 and 5 are meant to take care of this pollution. And I've read scholars who think of the blood as almost like a detergent, and that's not a bad metaphor. And there are two types of mandatory sacrifices. The first is called the sin offering or the sin sacrifice, or better, I would say, the purification offering or the purification sacrifice. And that was offered for taking away the pollution that resulted from the unintentional sins of priests and of the people. Now, what those sins are, are not mentioned other than it concerns, not specifically, but it it concerns anything that God commanded that should not be done. Like the, you know, think of the thou shalt not to the Ten Commandments, the things that God commanded that should not be done. It involves some sort of an unintentional trespass. You see, sin happens, and God isn't angry. You just have to make it right through a ritual. The other mandatory sacrifice is the guilt offering, which is better understood as a reparation offering. Guilt, again, just has certain connotations that probably is, is not what the, this regulation is saying. But it's a reparation offering, a paying back to God some compensation for unintentionally misusing holy things or perhaps unwittingly overstepping a holy boundary of some sort. These things can also include deceiving or defrauding a neighbor, at least that's what we read there. Okay, so these instructions concerning voluntary and mandatory sacrifices are all given to uh, the people in general from God through Moses. These are the things that the people hear. Most of chapter 6 and 7 move on to another topic, which is instructions to the priests themselves about officiating over these same sacrifices, which involves their own sorts of rituals. And for our purposes, there's really no need to get into any of this detail, but just know when you're reading this, it sounds repetitive, but the difference is that in 6 and 7, it's the priests are being addressed, whereas in 1 through 5, it's the people being addressed.
Now, next comes chapters 8 through 10, and we use we talk about this as a block because these are not commands or regulations or laws, but they are narrative. So, you have a narrative section that sort of breaks up the laws a little bit, and they recount the process for ordaining priests, a very important thing, because they're the ones who are going to be very close to God doing the sacrifices on behalf of the people, and there's a ritual whereby they are ordained, and it involves an anointing with oil. See, not just kings are anointed, but priests are anointed, also some prophets are anointed as well. It's for a a special set-apart task that they have to do. So, we read about this anointing and also a number of sacrifices that are involved in this ordaining process for the priests, and that's in chapter 8. Chapter 9 is about the ordination of Aaron as high priest. Likewise, it's a big deal, you know, with uh, a number of rituals associated with that. Now, here's the thing. Before we get to chapter 10, I just want to set this up. When you get to the end of chapter 9, at this point, everything is in place. Finally, the tabernacle is completed, the sacrificial laws are arranged, the priest and the high priest are consecrated for their tasks. Everything is in place to begin the worship of God in the tabernacle. This is no small moment in Israel's history. Again, the whole reason for the Exodus was to worship slash serve, it means the same thing, to worship or serve God on Mount Sinai. And now they are finally ready to do that. In fact, Gary Anderson, who was a, a guest on the podcast a couple of years ago, Gary Anderson writes that this moment is actually the culmination of the very purpose of creation of the entire biblical story from the beginning, Genesis 1, up to this point. This is the culmination, finally, the true and right worship of the one true God. Now, the world is as it should be, the chosen people worshiping the true God at God's holy sanctuary, at the base of God's holy mountain. You can sort of say heaven on earth if you want to. Keeping that in mind is important for understanding the next scene. In chapter 10, Aaron, remember he's the high priest, his sons Nadab and Abihu, remember they're priests, they're not high priests, but they're priests, they're charged with officiating over sacrifices. But Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu, they offer unholy fire before the Lord, and a better translation is probably unauthorized fire. Nobody knows what that means, at least I haven't found an explanation that I think nails it, but it simply suggests that Nadab and Abihu did something that they shouldn't have done. They somehow overstepped a holiness boundary here at the culmination of the entire history of the world as far as the Israelites were concerned. And as a result, what does God do? He consumes Nadab and Abihu on the spot with fire from above. And I know, that's one of these stories is like, ugh, what kind of a God is this? And that does seem very harsh. And I'm not sure if God actually consumes people with fire. I'm, my, I'm betting on that God doesn't do that. But this is the Israelite understanding of God and of their faith 
a very, very long time ago. And it seems harsh, but remember that at this moment, creation itself, this is what creation itself has been moving towards since the beginning. And no sooner are things in place, but a couple of priests break the rules. See, this moment, maybe to put this in a much broader perspective, this moment is an echo of the Garden of Eden story. There, God allows Adam and Eve to abide with God in God's sacred presence. Yes, the, the garden is a sacred presence, and it's actually a metaphor for the tabernacle and later the temple, which are both sacred space. But Adam and Eve's failure to abide by God's command led to punishment. They were driven out of paradise, which Genesis calls a death. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, right? But they didn't die. They were exiled at the end of chapter 3 in Genesis. So, Leviticus 10 is another fall narrative. It's about a disobedience and the loss of sacred space and a death. In fact, to broaden this out even further, there is another similar story in Exodus. It's the golden calf story. There too, where are we? We're at God's holy mountain. While Moses is at the summit getting God's commands, the Israelites worship a golden calf and have a wild party. This is God's holy mountain, for heaven's sake. And they're crossing a major holiness boundary. They're worshiping a golden calf. So what does God do? God punishes them for their disobedience by having the Levites go through the camp and kill 3,000 of the people. Again, it seems harsh, and frankly, it is harsh in my opinion, but it doesn't matter. We're trying to understand the theology of Leviticus, the logic behind it, the deaths of Nadab and Abihu were a, from the logic of Leviticus, an appropriate response for daring to try to ruin everything, even if it was inadvertent. The priest should not have done what they did. You're going to throw everything off the rails. This is a big moment. Now, um, not to get off the track here, but I, again, these are little nuggets that I think are very, very important. The Adam and Eve story the golden calf story and this unauthorized fire story are all fall stories of Israel's disobedience and sacred space and God's response. You know, the Adam and Eve story is never picked up again after Genesis 5, but in a way it sort of is, just very indirectly, more thematically, more symbolically, and not literally. And I'm just making a point of this first to show the theological depth and the subtlety of Leviticus, and also to help us not see this story as just weird and mean. In the theology of Torah, this all really does fit together. Now, what we do with that theology today, and especially Christians in light of the gospel and in light of 2,000 years of reflection, that's another issue entirely. But we're just dealing with the theology of the book of Leviticus, which I think I wanted to try to respect before we critique. Okay. Moving to chapters 11 to 15, we come to a part of Leviticus that many of you might be familiar with. This is the concepts of clean and unclean, which is where Jewish kosher laws come from. They're based on that. Now, the reasoning behind this distinction of clean and unclean, unfortunately, is not clear. So, we're not going to get into all the theories. That would be, you know, a half an hour podcast in and of itself, just ferreting that out. But just know that there are animals 
that may be eaten and other animals that should not be eaten. That's one thing that we discuss here, what we see here in Leviticus uh, chapter 11. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, we're not told what happens to someone if they eat unclean animals. I'm not sure why. We're only told what happens when someone touches an unclean animal's carcass. What do you do? Well, if that happens, you have to wash your clothes and you remain unclean until evening. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, to be unclean means you need to ritually cleanse yourself and then isolate from the rest of the community. Why? Well, presumably because your unclean state is a pollution. It's a contagion. And that's actually a good metaphor for trying to understand this clean and unclean business. Now, the rest of this section deals with matters other than food, like a woman's period of uncleanness after giving birth. By the way, for a male birth, that period of uncleanness is seven days, which is why circumcisions happen on the eighth day. By the way, remember Jesus' circumcision in the Gospel of Luke? Mary and Joseph come to the temple, and they offer a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons as a sacrifice for Mary's purification, which means after seven days. And offering a dove and pigeons, well, that's right out of Leviticus chapter 12. Normally, a lamb was sacrificed, unless you're poor, which Joseph and Mary apparently were. So, Leviticus makes provisions for offering things that are less costly. Anyway, for female births, it's not a one-week period of uncleanness, it's a two-week period. Don't ask me why. The point here, though, is that there is something about blood that renders the woman unclean. And this is why, this is a really good example why I'm focusing on this. This is why it's important to get something straight about clean and unclean. Unclean does not mean being in a state of sin. A woman who has given birth or who is menstruating has done nothing wrong, but she's unclean, which means a period of separation from the community along with some sort of offering one of which is the sin offering. The fact that the offering is called a sin offering, that's probably, at least it has helped promote the idea that the woman is in a state of sin, but she isn't. And that's why, as we saw a minute ago, sin offering is better translated as purification offering, because the point is to be purified from the uncleanness, not to be purified from sin. It's really important to keep that distinction clear. We also, in this section, have two chapters on various skin diseases, and then another on bodily discharges that make one unclean. Now, you've probably heard that the Hebrew word leprosy, most study Bibles will give you this information, that the Hebrew word leprosy is actually misleading. Leprosy is a specific skin disease, but Leviticus describes something much broader. So, the Hebrew word translated leprosy is tsara'at, and it might be best to just leave it untranslated and just handle this in a footnote, what that refers to, general skin diseases. The discharges, the bodily discharges, deal with both normal and pathological discharges from male and female genital organs. There you go. Not the stuff of family Bible time, but anyway— the same thing is going on here. These people are not in a state of sin. You might remember the woman who had been discharging, menstruating for 12 years, whom Jesus heals. 
right? This is a pathological, not normal discharge. He did not heal her from sin, but from a perpetual state of uncleanness that had her ostracized from the community. She needed to be restored, not forgiven. Now, for some reason, these discharges are important matters. In chapter 15, verse 31, we read that the Israelites are to be kept separate from their uncleanness, which would result in defiling the tabernacle and, it seems, even their own death, right? Because if, if you're not going to take care of the uncleanness in the prescribed way by going through the rituals of washing and separating and sacrificing, well, then the contagion will eventually get out of hand and contaminate the tabernacle. So, if someone is running around the camp spreading his or her uncleanness all over and not caring, they might need to be executed to protect the tabernacle. That's how serious tabernacle purity is. See, it's not about individual perfection. That's another important thing to say. This is not about you have to be a perfect thing and have no problems, but it's more when you're unclean, there are things that need to be done. And thankfully, it's really readily available. It's not terribly hard. It just takes a little bit of waiting and some washing and maybe a sacrifice. That's what they're told to do. Okay. Anyway, which brings us to the last chapter of part one. This is chapter 16, and it's the Day of Atonement, also called the Day of Purification, and in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, which for me as a kid just meant I got a day off from school. But anyway, this is not only the last chapter of part one, but something of, I think, a centerpiece of Leviticus. See, each year, here's what happens. The high priest and the high priest alone would enter the most sacred part of the tabernacle called the Inner Sanctum the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The point was to take away any lingering impurities that may have infected the tabernacle over the course of the last year, something that wasn't caught, that is probably infecting the community, they don't know what it is, but just as a surety to make sure that nothing is contaminating it now. And there are a lot of moving parts here to this ritual, but basically it means that Aaron— Before entering the tabernacle, he needed to sacrifice a bull to, first of all, why take away any unknown impurity he might be harboring, can't have him offering sacrifices for the people if he's impure himself. And then he takes two goats. This is the really interesting part. This is the part people probably know something about uh, when it comes to this, this, um, this ritual. But two goats, one would be offered as a sacrifice and the other would be sent off into the wilderness, this is what the phrase says, to Azazel. Now, this is, this is odd on several levels, but this goat seems to have the impurities of the entire community placed on him. Not the sin placed upon him the way we think of it, but the impurities of the people. And then he's cast out of the community to put the impurities far away from the tabernacle and almost certainly just simply die out there, either getting killed by another animal or just dying of thirst or hunger or whatever, right? So far, so good. At least so far, we understand sort of what's going on. But what is this Azazel? Well, older Bibles, namely the King James Version, took their cue from rabbinic tradition and rendered it scapegoat. And that's a term that has stuck around in English usage. Um, rabbis later read Azazel. Uh, they, they broke that, it's one word in, in Hebrew, but they broke it up into Ez Azel, uh, which means a goat that goes away. 
but that's probably very unlikely. And nowadays, scholars understand Azazel as you might want to be sitting down here, but they understand Azazel as a leftover allusion to an older ideal where Azazel is a desert demon. Oh, it's weird. Yeah, it is weird. But this is an idea that goes as far back, well, it's before the time of Jesus, and it's still seen in like the 12th century in Judaism. This is not just a made-up thing, but there seems to be some historical precedent for this. Now, this Azazel does seem to be not just like a scapegoat, it's not an adjective describing the goat. This Azazel does seem to be an entity of some sort. See, lots were cast on the two goats, and as verse 8 says, one lot for Yahweh, for the Lord, one lot for Yahweh, and one lot for Azazel, right? It sounds like Azazel is a being of some sort, like Yahweh is a being of some sort. Now, unfortunately, None of this, of course, is explained at all in Leviticus or anywhere else in the Bible, but it does go to show us how very interesting the Bible can get once we dig down even just a little bit. And it should also be a reminder why having a good study Bible can really open our eyes. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Okay, well, that's part one. To set up part two, 
Let's circle back and talk for a moment about the structure of Leviticus. Leviticus is not a mishmash of laws loosely arranged. It is organized. It's very organized. And the entire book is structured, interestingly, around 36 speeches of God that begin, the Lord said. That's how the book opens. Now, 36 is a multiple of 12, and you know I don't like getting number happy when it comes to the Bible, but this is surely no accident. It's three times 12, right? So those are two important numbers there. And I mentioned earlier that chapter 27, remember that, is considered a sort of a tacked-on appendix at a much later time. Well, some scholars think that it may have been tacked on to create that 36th speech. Interesting idea. Anyway, to give this book a sense of order and coherence. Anyway, you've got these 36 speeches that begin the Lord said. 31 of them are addressed to Moses. So Moses is the main guy. Four to Moses and Aaron, and one to Aaron alone. And along with that, Leviticus has 12 summary statements spread out through the book. Again, 12, right? And those summary statements, obviously, they summarize what was just said before, moving on to another topic. They can act for us as like alternate chapter divisions, and that might be a good way for us to read Leviticus, just to shake things up a bit. See, again, get a good study Bible, mark the summary statements, and read it section by section. Maybe that'll help make some sense or get a different kind of flow for the book. Chapter divisions are too arbitrary, especially in, in well, I think in a lot of books, but in Leviticus, certainly. So, okay, chapter 16 is also a structural marker of a different sort, and here we're going to get a little bit more into modern scholarship of of the book of Leviticus. Not only is chapter 16 the climax of the book up to this point, but it takes us into part two, which seems quite distinct from part one. There's, There's some sort of a uh, in some respects, there's a big break between 16 and 17. They're connected in terms of content, but they also differ. And not to dig too deeply here, but you might be interested in listening to some of our previous podcasts that deal with the composition of Torah as a whole to maybe flesh out a little bit of what I'm seeing here. Not, don't go do this right this second, but maybe as a follow-up, you have nothing else to do, okay? The bottom line. Let's just get to the bottom line. The bottom line is that 1 to 16 and 17 to 26, again, leaving 27 off, are widely considered by scholars of all stripes to be the product of two different authors representing two different legal traditions. 1 to 16 are the priestly edition, which is usually called P for short. And we know this author well because he shows up throughout Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, and he has a distinctive vocabulary and take on things. You, you really know when you're reading this priestly tradition or this priestly author. Now, chapters 17 to 26 are called by scholars the Holiness Code, H for short. And one big difference between these traditions is that for P, now listen, one big difference between these traditions is that for P, the tabernacle is the sacred holy space. For H... It's the land of Israel as a whole. See, the, the, it expands beyond the tabernacle. And likewise, P focuses on the holiness of priests. And, and you might get that more clearly from another P text, which is the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Don't worry about that here. 
But P focuses more on holiness for priests, but in H, it's the holiness of all the people. We're going to see an example of that later. So, you see, for H, since all of the land is holy, the holiness of the people becomes all the more important because the land, not just the tabernacle, but the land is sacred space. A very big difference between the two, again, P and H, is that for P, impurity, uncleanness, unholiness, I'm using those terms interchangeably, all that is ritualistic, ceremonial, as it's called. Impurity is not a sin, I've said that before, but it keeps you from community and it keeps you from God, and so steps need to be taken to restore that relationship. For H, purity and impurity are more personal, moral matters. See, this is, this is vital, folks. Ritual purity, things like the foods that you eat, giving birth, skin diseases, discharges, etc., and also touching human corpses, um, are not moral issues. They're not issues of moral impurity. Why? Because, you know, for one thing, they're unavoidable, right? Like childbirth, you know, you can't always, you know, you can't control the skin diseases you get. They're unavoidable. And it's, in some cases, like touching human corpses, you have to bury them, right? In some cases, getting unclean is even obligatory. You, yeah, you can't just leave the body there. You got to bury it. So, so they're not sinful or resulting from sin. Also, they are impermanent. That sort of ties in with all these rituals we're talking about. You know, you may be separated from the community for a day or for a week or a little longer. It involves some waiting, it involves some bathing, washing of clothes, sacrifice. But something happens where the ritual impurity gets taken away. And these ritual impurities are contagious, right? If unchecked, they accumulate it's like not taking the garbage out in your kitchen for a month at a time. It starts to smell and it ruins the whole kitchen. The only way to do something is to take care of the uncleanness, right? So if the uncleanness is unchecked, the contagion takes over and it makes the tabernacle ultimately unfit for the divine presence, which is, again, the whole point of the tabernacle and which is why you have the Day of Atonement, right? The tabernacle as being the place for God's presence is vital for Israelite thinking, for Israelite religion. H, by contrast, is concerned with moral impurity. Moral impurity is a result of a volitional sin. And oftentimes in H, it concerns sexual acts. It includes idolatry and other acts that defile the land and that pose a serious threat to the land that will result in the expulsion of the people from the land, which, by the way, Leviticus knows full well from the point of view of the author, already happened, the exile. They were already driven out of the land, and this is sort of H's explanation for that. It's the impurity of the people. The land can't contain you. It's got to throw you out. It's sort of like the garbage accumulating in the kitchen, bags and bags. You just open the window and toss it out, toss it out into the driveway or something, right? Just got to get rid of it. See, the land here in H is symbolically like the tabernacle and also the Garden of Eden. It's another of God's sacred spaces where impurities cannot be tolerated. So, unlike ritual impurity, the consequences of moral impurity are long-lasting, even permanent. They're not temporary. 
And because these are not involuntary acts, but volitional, there's no means of purifying the offender. The solution, as we see throughout this section, is, is typically, but not always, death. See, that's how you purify the land. And it's here in H that we see that word, which pops up in a lot of sermons, abomination. The acts are abominable because they pose a threat to Israel's existence in the land. See, one thing that ritual purity and moral purity regulations share, there's one thing that they really have in common, is that both have corporate effects for what individuals do, right? Whether it's moral or, or, or a ritual impurity, the act does affect the greater area or uh, the others, uh, the people, or even the tabernacle. It affects more than just the individual. It's not about, again, personal perfection. It's about the effect that you have on the greater whole. And if the impurity is not dealt with, well, well you need to deal with it because the consequences are not good. And ritual impurity and moral impurity have different ways of dealing with that issue. Okay? That's a really key point, I think, to understanding just the nature of these regulations in the book of Leviticus and uh, also the distinctiveness of P and H, which make up the two halves. Okay, let's try to hit a couple of more issues briefly before we end. And one, which I think is fascinating, is the idea of holiness and zones of holiness that we see in Leviticus. See, none, again, I want to repeat this because it's so important. None of these words like holy, clean, and pure means perfection. They all have to do with avoiding things that make the community and the tabernacle or the land in the case of H unfit for God's presence. So Leviticus, in a manner of speaking, is all about how people can be near God and stay there. And the closer one gets to God, the closer one gets to God's presence, the more serious things get. This is one angle on Nadab and Abihu's unauthorized fire, for which they were themselves consumed by fire, right? This happened right after the sacrificial system in the tabernacle was established, right in the heart of establishing God's presence with Israel through the system of sacrifices. This is why Nadab and Abihu didn't just get a stern talking to. So this raises, we're getting to this idea of zones, this raises the idea of zones of holiness and zones of degrees of closeness to God. See, we see this on Mount Sinai. This is really the first place we see it. And think of concentric circles. Only Moses, right, can climb to the summit of Mount Sinai. He alone can be up there in God's presence. Priests and elders, well, they can go part of the way up the mountain. And the people and the altar of sacrifice, well, they remain at the foot of the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. The tabernacle has similar zones. Why? Because the tabernacle is a portable Mount Sinai. God transfers God's home from a mountain to a sanctuary. That's, that's what the tabernacle is. And so, we see a similarity between uh, Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. For example, in the tabernacle, only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies which is where the Ark of the Covenant is, and upon which Yahweh himself is said to be enthroned. The high priest's audience with God is, think of it this way, a reenactment of Moses on Mount Sinai in God's presence. Now, priests can enter the holy place, which is the next zone removed, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And the people and everyone 
are on the outside in the outer court, another level removed. This is where the altar of sacrifice is uh, before the priests even go into the tabernacle itself. See, the tabernacle and Mount Sinai are mirror images of each other. And, you know, we can expand these zones further to the land itself, right? In Numbers, the tabernacle as a whole is the center of God's holy presence, but then think again of concentric circles. The Israelite camp is one step removed, and the area outside of that, further away, is the wilderness. That's the furthest part away. Right, you see that three levels happening on the uh, on the level of the whole land, and um, later when we get to the period of the monarchy, we see something similar. There's no tabernacle, obviously, because they're not wandering around in the desert. But now you have the temple as central, and then the land itself is God's land, and then beyond the land is the land of the exile. So you have three levels of God's closeness, and we see that in. The sanctuary, the tabernacle, or the temple, and we see it with, you know, these gradations on Mount Sinai. There's, there's something about this pattern that's very important to at least these priestly writers in, um, in the Hebrew Bible. See, both sanctuaries, the tabernacle and the, t- and the temple, along with the land, are central to Israel's understanding of itself and understanding of God. There is no more holy place to be on earth than in the sanctuary, performing the daily rituals in a state of cleanness in the land that God has given you. And when those things are ripped from you as they were in the exile, you know, maybe we can appreciate how devastating that was and how powerfully Judaism had to regroup after these things about what it even means to be a Jew. But that's another podcast. But just now... Building a sanctuary in Babylon and exile would not have gone over well. You can't just put God's house anywhere. Okay, one last thing, if I may, about the zones of holiness. The sacrificial animals also have zones. The fat, called the suet, this is the hardened fat that encases the kidney and the liver. They, that, that fat, it belongs to Yahweh alone. Don't you think about eating it. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, It starts around verse um, 15. You can read about what happens to priests who take the fat for themselves. Guess what happens? They die, right? Like Nadab and Abihu died, right? They overstepped a serious holiness boundary. And death is also the penalty, by the way, for idolatry and blasphemy. Why? It's crossing a pretty major holiness boundary. It's false worship, something pertaining directly to God. Likewise, murder is also punishable by death, perhaps because humans are image bearers of God. And also, certain sexual acts are punishable by death, like bestiality, uh, various forms of incest, and sex with someone of the same gender. Now, what all these have in common is genitalia, and it raises the question of why these behaviors are deserving of death, which is a very hard question to answer. Remember, folks, this podcast is not about debating Leviticus, but trying to understand its logic, its theology, its structure, what it was trying to say back in the day. And I know that the matter of human sexuality is a deeply meaningful issue for many of you, and even divisive for some. And I don't appear to be wanting to sidestep it. Far from it, I think we have several episodes exploring various related topics uh, to human sexuality. 
But here, I just want to try to touch on the nature of Israelite religion. What we do with that religion today, in light of, again, thousands of years of reflection, and including reflection on the gospel, what we do with this is a matter of very serious and mature theological reflection that has been going on since the church began. Okay, but one common answer, let me get to a, a possible answer. One common answer about why these sexual behaviors are deserving of death is that they are just social taboos. All societies have things that just gross them out, and we even share some of them with Israelite culture, like, you know, having sex with your mother, things like that. I think that is a valid explanation, historically speaking. Another thought, another potential explanation is that the genitalia are about reproduction, you know, to fill the earth as Genesis says humans should. And that won't happen except for sexual relations between men and women. But at the end of the day, I'm simply not sure what the logic is here. I'm not convinced that anyone has a really solid answer. And I mean, just think of it this way, in the same way that we don't know the reasoning behind clean and unclean, even though that's so basic a concept to the Leviticus, we might not really have the reasoning process here about human sexuality and how that's treated in Leviticus. Anyway, we sidetracked. We do that a lot here at the Bible for normal people. But uh, we're talking about the zones of the sacrificial animal. The fat belongs to God. Let's call that the most inner zone of the animal. The next zone, the inner zone, includes entrails, reproductive organs, legs. Most of these belong exclusively to God, but not all. Some's available to the priests. The outer zone includes the head and the body, and that's food for priests and the people. See, again, you see these three, a three-part division of the animal itself. Okay, two quick points as we bring this to a close. Thank you for your patience, folks. One has to do with the presence of contradictions in Leviticus between P and H, but also between Leviticus as a whole and other legal sections of Torah. Why am I raising this? I only raise it because I find it fascinating that a book where God is doing almost all of the talking, giving Israel laws of ritual and moral purity, it's fascinating that this book, of all books, contains contradictory laws and contradicts other parts of Torah where God is likewise giving commands. And I want to say this bluntly, and this is not debatable. These things are actually happening in Torah. The easiest explanation is that Torah contains several legal traditions that arose in some respects independently of each other, but probably not entirely independently, but were localized. And in, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you're used to hearing that. In, in my book, Exodus for Normal People, which came out in 2021, I deal a lot with these traditions as they are seen in the book of Exodus. So that might be some place for you to go if, if you want to read a little bit more about it. But anyway, the biblical editors who brought these traditions together were not fools. They could read. They were not asleep at the switch. They kept these traditions, these sometimes conflicting traditions, together because they both had value for their communities. And I'm saying all this to you just so you know that I'm not trying to tear the Bible apart by pointing out the fact of contradictions, but just trying to explain, as I'm always trying to do, just the nature of the book which clearly did not drop out of heaven, but like all biblical books, developed over time and was handled by different people in different times. One example of an internal contradiction in Leviticus between P and H concerns sex during menstruation. What a great topic. Anyway, 
That is a no-no throughout Leviticus, but the penalties are not the same. In chapter 15, you can look up the specific references yourself, but in chapter 15, the man is considered unclean for seven days, right? This is P. It's a matter of ritual purity. It's not permanent. It's ritual cleansing that's needed. Not a big deal. It's something, you have to take care of it, but, you know, you're not going to uh, jump off the deep end because of this. In chapter 18, we read of a number of sexual sins, one of them being sex during menstruation. But there it's treated on par with things like incest and adultery. And the penalty for all of these sins is that the land will vomit the people out, which again is exile language. See, remember, land purity is part of H's ideology, and we see it here in the law. He's concerned about the land. Then turn to chapter 20. There, the impurity or uncleanness is called a sickness, and intercourse results in both, this is so different, both the man and woman being cut off from their people. Whatever that means, that doesn't seem to be a temporary period of isolation and cleansing, but something that looks permanent, which could be anything to be cut off from your people, could be anything from like excommunication to maybe a premature death of some sort, or perhaps even execution. See, trying to reconcile these regulations to make them all say the same thing, it just twists you into knots. One quick example of a contradiction between Leviticus and laws outside of Leviticus concerns eating dead animals that you happen to come across. According to Leviticus 17, if any person, hear me, any person, citizen or alien, comes upon an animal that has either died or been killed by another animal and eats it, they need to do what? Wash their clothes, wash themselves, and they will be unclean until evening. This is not a sin. It's a cause of uncleanness. There are ritual things to do to get rid of the uncleanness. In 22, however, chapter 22, priests now are specifically prohibited from eating carcasses at all. If they do, they will die in the sanctuary. See, for H... This is chapter 22, is H. For H, priests operate on a higher level, let's say, than Joe and Jane Israelite. Now compare this to Deuteronomy, chapter 14. There we read yet a third perspective, that no one shall eat anything that dies on its own. Sure, give it to the foreigners, but the people as a whole are holy. They don't eat of it at all. See, Deuteronomy seems to put the people on like the same level that H puts the priests none of you can eat it. Likewise, Exodus 22, uh, verse 31, prohibits all people from eating the meat of animal mangled by beasts. See, this is just something worth observing, that's all. The act of eating carcasses is presumed to be happening in Leviticus 17, that's P. It's a ritual impurity and therefore not permanent. In H, Leviticus 22, priests are singled out as not being allowed ever to eat a carcass, which is presumed they were able to do back in chapter 17. And then in Deuteronomy and Exodus, this absolute prohibition against eating carcasses includes all the people. No one may eat of a carcass. Now, I've said this in other contexts, but I'll say it here again. If you're bored and want something to keep you busy for the rest of your life, study the law codes in the Pentateuch. There are a lot of puzzles there to untangle. And at the very least, simply quoting a law from Leviticus or anywhere you know, as if it is, you know, it is what it is, and that's it, it's the law, and the law is permanent, stuff like that. That kind of a mentality doesn't take into account the historical and the literary complexities, 
which the editors of the Bible had no interest in shielding us from. Right? Again, welcome to adult Bible study. Okay, one last point, and I promise briefly. The laws of Leviticus, as well as the laws elsewhere in Torah, do not exist simply as law codes, sort of like Apple's terms and conditions do, just sort of plopped in front of you. The laws are embedded in a narrative context that begins with creation in Genesis and extends to Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy. Torah, as a whole, is a story that takes us from creation to Egypt, to Mount Sinai, and to the brink of the Promised Land. Woven into that narrative are Israel's legal traditions. And perhaps one of the bigger lessons to take away from this is the following. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again because I think it's so crucial, especially for Christians to hear. The laws are a response to God's act of deliverance from Egypt. They are not conditions for salvation. Israel was saved by God because they were the chosen people. Let's say they were elect. As the end of Exodus 2 puts it, it's, it's because God made a promise to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Israel. That's why God delivered them. Keeping the law is not the condition for Israel being the chosen people. They always were. Law defines, to use the phrase, the covenant relationship between the rescuer and the rescuees. In other words, to put this in Christianese, laws were not about earning their salvation. You know, do these things and you will be my chosen people. Rather, you are my chosen people, now here is how to act like it. And I know that from our perspective, these laws are somewhere between irrelevant and at times morally problematic, but I think the big picture remains that law follows grace. It doesn't precede it. Again, to put that into some Christian language, becoming a Christian is not about earning points by obedience, but living a faithful life as a Christian is a matter of ever-increasing alignment with the heart of God. Being saved by grace does not mean the saved ones have no obligations. Quite to the contrary, these obligations become more serious. That's really not a controversial point in Christian theology, but even if what it means to be aligned with God is not always clear to us, but that's where all the interesting theological discussions can happen. What does it mean to live in harmony with God and God's ways? That's not an easy question to answer, and I'm glad that it's not. All right, folks. Anyway, I hope this has been helpful for you. This has gone a little bit longer than I intended, but I hope, yeah, you can pause and do what you want, right? So, let me say again, this is important too. We're only touching the surface. If you want to dig into this more, I do suggest at least beginning by simply reading Leviticus with a good study Bible to try to catch a sense of the whole and then perhaps move on from there in your studies. Okay, folks, until next time, see ya. Well, that's it for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before you go, we want to give a huge shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Jerry L. Lewis, Dr. Isaiah Wilson, Chris Pearson, Esther Goetz, Joan Goodman, Fred Fouth, Eileen Kaywood, Sean Michael Phillips, Rob Buckingham, and Peter Hack. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review or just tell others about our show. 
You can also head over to patreon.com slash thebibleforNormalPeople, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing director Savannah Locke, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. And of, of course, there's always, you know, I have to do that again, Dave, lack of subject verb agreement. Dave, I'm sorry, I need to start that again because an alert went off and it distracted me. I'm going to start with the top of the paragraph. And it's also about the responsibility of the... Oh gosh, I have to, I don't even know what that last sentence is saying. So what does God do? God punishes them for their disobedience by having the Levites... Sorry, Dave, I just dropped my earbud. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.